You are listening to episode 49 of The Lewis and Kyle Show with David Oakley. I worked at a bank, I worked for a law firm, I worked for Protective Life, insurance. I, I, I'm scratching all the itches and, and doing that as soon as you can to get to something you like. I mean, because putting on those boots that fit will take you much further if you can wear those boots that fit in your 20s and run in those boots as opposed to going, this just is not a good fit. Like this is my right foot hurts. Like I need to make a change. Hello and welcome to the Lewis and Kyle show, an interview podcast where Kyle and I share the best ideas and business advice from our favorite entrepreneurs, real estate investors, and content creators. In this episode, we talk to David Oakley. David is the senior managing director of the Birmingham Bricadia office, CEO of the David Oakley group, and has founded multiple businesses in the real estate industry that he has since exited. He has been the largest multifamily broker in the state of Alabama since 2007, transacting billions of dollars in multifamily deals. What's most impressive, though, is his willingness to bet on himself. Many times, he has taken the leap into the unknown world of starting a business and leaving comfort behind. And in 2021, he's doing that again. And through this interview, you'll hear more about that. In this episode, we talk about Birmingham real estate, his process for evaluating deals, the arc of his career, how to find a deal, and the future of real estate. We really hope you enjoy our conversation with David Oakley. David, thank you so much for coming on as a guest for the Lewis and Kyle show. We're excited to have you. Privileged to be here, guys. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So briefly for our listeners, could you just describe what you've done in the past and and what you don't do now in terms of your professional career inside of the multifamily real estate industry? Yeah. So, you know, it's a pretty open-ended question, but, you know, in the past I have come up through the brokerage ranks, got started in the brokerage side of the business, exclusively a multifamily at a young age of, I think I was an intern at 20 years old, 19, 20. And, um, and then decided that that would be a full-time profession for me. So I pursued a full-time role as a broker and, um, you know, over the years brokered, uh, just over $6 billion of real estate and, I'll be 40 in January coming up on that big four O in just a few days, few weeks. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's led me to start my own, um, acquisition holding company development company, uh, which we're, um, excited to really launch in the public probably sometime in March of 2021. So that's sort of fresh news. Um, but yeah, I've lived sort of a professional life in multifamily and I'm fascinated by, uh, the twists and turns and just the creativity in the space. And uh, I love to share with guys like you and your audience because it really is sort of somewhat of a hidden secret and it hasn't been until sort of podcasts like this one and others hitting the streets to where it's kind of opened itself up to, to more people for such a long time. The real estate business has been old fashioned, you know, who's your dad type of situation. And you only got in if you knew somebody, right? And um, it's it's encouraging to see that those walls are being broken down and that it's becoming more accessible. But yeah, so here I am um, in wrapping up my, my brokerage side of the business and leaning all in, chips all in on the ownership side, which is uh, exciting. Uh, let's say a little scary, not really scary, but uh, sort of enough to kind of, keep you on your heels and it's, it's more exciting than scary. And I think that 
Um, we're very opportunistic in this environment with the pandemic and just with everything happening in the world. I think it's uh, the timing is going to be good for us. Yeah, that's that's fresh news. I'm excited to dive a little bit into that, you know, and I know that in the past there have been times where you've pushed your chips all in uh, a few different times. And that's something that I want to get into. But before we kind of get there, you said you've seen and, and transacted over six billion dollars in multifamily real estate, which is like insane, you know. So with having seen so many different deals, what stands out to you as some of the key performance indicators for these different deals? You know, with six billion dollars of of information to kind of pull from in your brain, what key performance indicators can you look at now that have been there um, in the most successful deals that you have transacted? Yeah. So it's sort of been fun to watch, you know, my early career, more mom and pops and, and, you know, your private net worth, high net worth, or even, you know, moderately high net worth guys who may have been Boeing retirees or, you know, had a little nest egg, 401k, Roth IRA, you know, roll out some of that retirement to invest in the small 10 to 20 unit community on Birmingham South side to, you know, working with institutional funds out of New York and, you know, big tier one cities uh, rolling out, you know, billion dollar funds of capital on an annual basis. So I've really got to experience all that and everywhere in between. And it's really interesting to watch. I mean, some people have their shit together and they've got a really dynamic process and it's ABC and they're blocking and tackling. And then others don't have much of a plan at all and timing really works in their favor. So some of the takeaways from, from, for me have been, you know, take what works and apply that and learn from things that haven't worked for people and apply that or don't apply that. Um, however you want to say that, but having a process for every part of the process is important, whether it be negotiating, finding the deal, we start with finding the deal. What's your process? You know, what, what's your, what are your deal parameters? And can you say no? It's very difficult to say no in our business because you see so many deals, so many rabbits, and you should only chase a few at a time where you can actually, you know, get it done. There's, there's certainly a lot of distraction in our, in our industry and because so many deals are coming at you through via email, flyers, LinkedIn, text. I mean, there's, there's always, there's constant flow of information and you have to choose very quickly do I have time to pursue this deal? Do I not? So there's a process for the acquisition side. Then there's a process for contract to due diligence. And there's an art in all of this. There's, there's art in process. Having a thorough inspection um, checklist, zoning report, surveys, um, title work, the physical due diligence staff on the property who are they do you want to keep them a thorough interview process are they aligned in your values do they have passion do they have energy do they stand up when you come in the room every deal is like buying a new business every deal is is different and every deal functions as a 
as a business, you have the front door, you have the back door, you have the income, you have the expenses. And um, so process, due diligence period is a really important process. I've been told before, good, good piece of advice is read every piece of paper you're given front to back carefully. And then of course, you're working on your financing and you're, you know, you're getting creative there and your capital stack and who, who, who's going to be the equity and who's going to be the debt and putting all that together is also a process. My advice is to always have more options than fewer options. So when you think you have a bank on board, get three on board. Mm-hmm. When you think you have your investors and your equity together, go fundraise and over oversubscribe the deal and call a few people and say, I'm sorry, we're oversubscribed. We can't take your money on this one. And then, you know, then you close and then the whole new process starts. What's your renovation program? Do you have a renovation program? Um, you want to have materials on the site immediately following the close. You don't want to burn time and, and, and delay your, your acquisition renovation program and then executing on that plan and following that plan to execute so that then you're in a position to refinance or sell the asset, or you may just continue to hold the asset. But if you're, if you're raising equity, which in in this case we're doing, we're syndicating the capital and we're paying certain returns to people. We all know that returns have a time element Mm -hmm. and, in whether that's cash on cash return or internal rate of return, return on cost, return on capital, time is a major element. So that that just reinforces the the importance of a process. So a takeaway for me and watching people over the years has been picking up on their their processes and their their list and their checklist and and noticing what type of people they have on their team to divide and conquer all those different tasks, marrying talent with the, with the task. Yeah. I really love that like artful depiction of each different step in the processes that you've seen. And I think that there's something really powerful about, you know, following models that others have created and been successful with not only in real estate, but in every single, you know, I'm a student, Lewis is a student. If we want to be good students, we need to model other people that have come before us and been good students. And it's the same thing for real estate in every other field. But I want to ask one more question sort of along these lines at, you know, you said that you get a lot of rabbits and I think you do in the position that you're in, you know, there's a ton of deals coming at you, but for people just starting out, they don't have that same sort of information flow. How would you recommend somebody to be in the position to start getting some of this good information in front of them so that they can, you know, analyze the deals and begin that process that you're talking about or better, better yet, what is your model or process for finding these deals? The first part of your question is, is easy. You need to get into the fire hydrant of deal flow, right? Like where, where do the deals come from? They come from brokers who are now, you know, that, that they have email um, distributions, which I actually came up with an idea I'll share with you later. Um, But 
the, the information flow is broken. It's, it's old, it's antiquated. And there's an app for that. And I have that app if you guys want to go spend the money to develop it. But to answer your question, Kyle, get on every major and regional and even local, any, any, you know, any broker's site and, and sign up for their distribution list, whether that's Mercadia, Cushman Wakefield, uh, Newmark, down to your local guys who are commercial real estate brokers who don't do a lot of multifamily, but they may come across a listing, you know, every once a quarter or twice a year, whatever. And that way you're getting those emails, those e-teasers, we call them, when those deals launch to the market. And then you can jump on third-party websites like Crexy, uh, like a LoopNet or a CoStar. And I've really enjoyed Crexy. They've kind of done some things right. It's real simple way for a broker to add their listing uh, to a site. Uh, you can actually submit a letter of intent via the website, which I love that because the days of printing, waiting for someone to sign, scanning is ludicrous. Uh, DocuSign has helped, but there's still better ways to, to submit and transmit a bid negotiation process. So yeah, I mean, getting getting on those e-teasers and, and, and even though you may not even know what you're looking at, seeing the deal helps build those creative juices and to see what's available where. And then you can, you can log in with the, and fill out the confidentiality agreement and download the offering package. You can download the financials and you can start playing around with, okay, does this deal make sense to me? Even if you only understand what a cap rate is, you know, net operating income divided by purchase price equals. I mean, even if you just run that one simple calculation on these deals, which you're probably going to be either tricked into believing that the broker is right and the cap rate is higher because they're not using real expenses, or you'll be overwhelmed because you're like, every deal I'm looking at is a three cap. Like, how do people buy this deal? But it's getting you to start thinking. And then, and then if you want to take the extra step, you pick up the phone and you call the broker who has it listed and you say, Hey, I've, I've dug through called Oakwood apartments in Huntsville, Alabama. And I see that, you know, your call for offer date is December 28th. Tell me the story behind the deal. Like what, what are the value components of the deal? Why, why, why should I buy this deal? And you start learning this through that engagement of hearing the brokers talk about the deal. You, you, you learn, you pick up a lot off of, off of those conversations. Yeah. I think there is a ton of really impactful ideas there. That last one about uh, the importance of knowing the numbers and the story and just getting on these distribution lists uh, and practicing running the numbers so you can build some intuition uh, so that when you're playing, when it counts, you kind of are automatically calculating these numbers in your head, almost intuitively the cap rate and all these other uh, again, potential KPIs, you can just start rattling off in your head almost immediately once you get on these lists. I uh, wrote this short little blog and a newsletter I sent out a few days ago about one of our previous guests has uh, as an angel investor in tech companies. And our podcast with him, with him was around how is he so uh, skilled at spotting trends and how does he recommend that someone else finds trends? Uh, and he said, you shouldn't just follow me on Twitter. And I think that can also be true kind of how you explained it in terms of deal flow. Like it's not super complicated. You don't need to quote unquote, go out and find deals. You just need to 
figure out who's already doing that and just sign up for their free or paid lists, depending on the quality you're willing to pay for and the volume you're willing to uh, work through. But I have a question about the timing side of real estate. And I don't know how different the answer is. And Kyle's a lot more knowledgeable than I am, uh, depending on multifamily and versus just someone looking to buy a house or an investment property for themselves. But one thing I'm interested in, and Kyle said, had sent me the, the Birmingham Investors podcast that you were featured on about in September is when they published it. And you mentioned this thing, how one of the best pieces you advice you had received was just to buy now. And a lot of people right now, especially we're recording this in December of 2020, are everyone likes to make their predictions about the next recession's coming or we're already in a recession or this housing market is so hot. And how, what kind of advice do you have for someone who wants to not go out and buy something right? It like is in the purchase position where they want to buy something, but everyone around them is saying, Oh, wait six months because there's a new president coming in or wait six months because you don't know what's going to happen. How do you reconcile kind of the difficulty of potentially seeing there's an oncoming recession, but also not being a macroeconomist and all of the, the kind of factors in the difficult decision. You know, a lot of times I'll use analogies, so you have to forgive me, but it's like you're at a party with your friends and a girl walks in and your friends don't notice her, but you do, right? Um, you see potential, you, there's something that catches your eye. That's a deal. And what if you're all your friends said, oh, uh, are, you, are you kidding me? Right. I mean, are you still not going to go up and, and buy a, a cocktail or, or, or try to engage in conversation just because your friends say not for me? I mean, I think so. I think you have to sort of lean on your own intuition. There are deals out there all the time. Right. It's not going to just happen uh, sitting at home and not engaging in, in activity. So, look, I think that despite what's going on. Uh, in the world, there always will be deals out there. They just have to be found. Whether there's, I mean, in, in, a, in, a, in a climate that we've had, you know, this past year. So why would somebody want to sell in this climate? Fear, number one. So there are people who want to buy and sell, you know, in, in, in high fear times and steady times, there's, there's, there's people are living their lives and they're getting older or they're, they're having life circumstances that change constantly. Um, and, and one of those is, is, is the debt component. When debt starts to mature, um, that's a good time to approach somebody because they're, they're going to make a capital move. So we track quite a bit the maturities of debt because that's leading up to a decision point for people most of the time. But I say buy now because, you know, that was the advice given to me. And when someone mentioned to me, you know, what would you give the 26 year old David Oakley? What advice would you give the 26 year old David Oakley? And I said, I would tell myself buy sooner. And just because you don't have the money, don't sit still. I mean, there are plenty of people who have money. If you find the deal, they'll find you. You know, people are looking for deals and alternative investments better than what they can find in a CD, a money market, or even in a 10-year treasury or whatever. So when you find a deal, even if it's a small deal, maybe it's a house, a flip, maybe it's a duplex, uh, maybe it's in the classified ad section, maybe you see it on Facebook Marketplace. I mean, you can look in all different cubby holes. And then you do a deal or do it the second deal and a third deal, then you just start rolling and you get a group of followers and 
you're off to the races. And that's what I did. I mean, I, I just started from just single family homes to a duplex, fourplex that turned into eight units and then just kept building. But you don't have to have any money to do a deal. You can find a good deal, pitch the deal to one of your friends who has the money um, or maybe the dad, dad has the money or whatever and put the deal together and you get free equity and you, you manage it, paint it, whatever it takes to earn your sweat equity. And then when the deal sells, you get a cut. And so you've just provided yourself with a, with a job. And it'd be nice to have three or four of those free jobs going at once. Right. And the larger the deal transaction is the more you're getting paid. I think that, it takes the mindset shift of not of thinking about it in terms of the deal and the deal being the most important piece of it and the value that you can, that you can force into the deal and just thinking about it in terms of the buy instead of like, well, I don't have this much money, so I I have to go out and earn it and I have to do this and that. It's like focus on finding the best deal possible and then everything else falls into place from there. And I mean, you know that better than I do, but that's the advice that I've been given from, from mentors and the like. But something that you said there was that like, you know, the girl walks in and you gotta, you gotta believe in yourself, right? You gotta walk up to her and, and go get it. And I think that that's something that you've done in the past. Like I mentioned briefly earlier and, and what I want to get into is like, you know, there was a point in your past where you, you left a, a big company to bet on yourself and start your own brokerage firm. And at the same time you started, I think it was either another, one other company or two other companies like on the same day in the same week. And what I'm curious is about like, what was your mindset like in that moment? And when you know that you have this gigantic mountain ahead of you that you're gonna have to climb, like what was day one like? And what steps did you take to get there? And then, sort of tying it all together, how do you feel like that right now with this new venture that you're launching in March? You know, first you need a few people around you to tell you, at least I did, you can do it. And then it's, and then it's, you know, free yourself up to, to do it, you know, whatever those distractions might be. I mean, for me, I broke up with a shaky relationship. I was super focused on getting to the office at 7 a.m. and leaving you know, sometime after seven, uh, usually that first year and also had a, had a good accountant who said, don't worry about your P and L's just go produce, put a box in your corner, put all your receipts in it, get a BP gas card and get a credit card and just go work. So then it took a, a lot of that distraction and allowed me to be creative just to go do deals. And so when I first started, you know, on my own, I was really focused on income and that was base hits, doubles, selling multifamily deals. And, um, and I started to select my space, which was an apartment finding company. And, and that was some good, like weekly income. So we were renting apartments and charging a month's rent in exchange for placing a resident in an apartment community. And that was a new concept for Alabama. It existed in larger metros like Chicago and Dallas and Atlanta and really, I didn't even know that they existed until after I started the company. And then I started meeting and I flew up and met with the people in Chicago and connected with other companies doing what I was doing, just didn't know they existed and learned from those guys. Later sold that company and started Blue Canoe, a property management company, which I later sold three years later. But, you know, I think it's, 
just focusing on the day, like, you know, your three, your three rocks, like, what do you want to do today? And not, not trying to conquer the world in, in a week, but you know, how can I produce and where can I use my time most efficiently? I really had a bad, you know, there's some, there's some trade-offs, right? There's some trade-offs to getting rid of the distractions. And I'll be the first one to admit my friend group suffered that those first young years of mine in business because I would hear and read, you know, don't, you know, guard your time, block your time. And so I would look around at my friends and just see them watching football on Saturday or playing golf or whatever. And I'd just be like, man, you're just wasting your life, you know? But they were enjoying the, you know, their friendship where I might come up to the office on Saturday morning and, plan for the next week or work on a deal or whatever. And I used to view time almost to the extreme to the point where I would coach my team. <laughs> if someone just dropped in the office, for example, if somebody just dropped in, Hey, Oakley, just want to come in and say, Hey to you out a couple of times, I would let them come in and meet with us. And then after they would leave, I would look around at the team and I'd say, all right, have you calculated what you're worth per hour? David, Royce, you go around the room. And then, and we would typically say, we were typically worth about $5,000 an hour back then. And you add that up and, and, I, and then I would say to the group, okay, if there's, if there's five of us in the room. So we literally could have just written him a $25,000 check when he came in here and just said, bye because our time was worth $25,000 that one hour. So I looked at it to an, at an extreme. So I wouldn't really rec recommend that, but I, I would emphasize how important it is to guard your time because you don't get it back and to value your time. Because, you know, would I ever have guessed that, you know, if I were billing my time that I would charge $5,000 an hour as a kid? No, I mean, but if you view time as value, which it is, and it, the value only increases that doesn't decrease as you get older. It's really important. I think that's an extremely interesting uh, story you told there. We actually had asked a question and I think episode 37, we interviewed this author named Eric Jorgensen uh, about this book you read about Naval Ravikant. And there's this part of the book that says set uh, an extremely ambitious personal hourly rate, and then hold yourself accountable to it. And it sounds like you realized what that was for not only yourself, but everyone else on your team. And then basically one, everyone realized that and internalized that is true. It changed the way that you approached your decision-making. And I would add to that, Lewis, that hiring the right people. I mean, I, I hired some really bright people and, you know, you kind of know where, when you're, when you're hitting your, your max, you know, good advice is stay lean and do everything that you can do on your own until you need, you, you know, you need to hire somebody. And then when you hire somebody, you know, for me, cause I'm, I was, pretty frugal and, and afraid to, I saw friends go out of business because they hired too quickly and too many. When I hired somebody like they were slammed, like the next, like they, we had, we might have a, a, a two day on board, but they were, if I saw people not busy, I, I would almost regret my decision or have doubts that they were the right person. And they felt that and they would just, drink from a fire hose. And so hiring, you know, I didn't, I didn't conquer six.
billion dollars in sales by myself. I mean, I had a fantastic team and I'm really high into knowing how people are wired. Everyone would take a Colby test and we, and that, that's not an intellectual test, just how are you wired? How do you react in situations? Are you a self-starter? Are you a fact finder, et cetera? And then we try to plug those people into, into the right seats, you know, good to great is one of my favorite books. And, and there's a lot of merit to the, the principles in that book. Yeah, absolutely. I think that people in general, like when I'm an accounting major and when uh, the accountants come to, to speak to our class, people ask like, what's your favorite part of the job? Like, what do you, what do you do? And there, and every time, no matter what, it's all about the people. And again, I think that's true across every industry. And if you don't like the people you're working with, you're not going to have a good life. Like, and that's just period fact. And you have to, especially as the entrepreneur and the person creating the environment, you have to create it to, to fit a culture. And that's a question that I wanted to ask you is like, how do you, how do you build culture and how do you cultivate these people toward a common goal in a way that makes everybody's life better? That's a good question, Kyle. I think that having positive energy is infectious and there, there have been many days in the past where I've walked up the stairs, come up to my office and I kind of mentally have to motivate myself because people read everything about you when you're the, particularly when you're the leader and you're running the ship, it's like, Mm -hmm. what kind of mood is David in today? Is he approachable? Is he, you know, my secretary could read me very well. And, um, but I think that positive energy, you know, knowing that, that they matter and that they're, they're providing value and that their opinions will be heard. I include, I include even the youngest people we would hire. I would take them to the national conventions with us, introduce them to, you know, high, high ups that, and typically younger associates would stay back in a, no window office and crank away. And, and it was kind of like you had to earn your way to go on a trip like that. I was, I always naturally have been empathetic and said to myself, what would I want if I were a 22 year old starting at a firm? Well, I'd want to see the world. Like I just show them the big picture right away, show them what's out there because that drives enthusiasm and it just helps them connect the dots to see, okay, this is, this is the matrix. Like I'm not in the bubble. Like I see the matrix. Now I know what I'm working on and what I'm working for. Even if I'm working on a, a a spreadsheet or an underwriting, you know, exercise. I mean, I, I plug in here because we need to go raise this much money and here's our investor base. And we want people who, you know, one activity and it's okay to have a little drama every now and then there is drama in real estate, a lot of drama. And I think people are drawn to just that every day is different here. Every single day. I mean, deals are different. Negotiations can get heated. Um, There's a lot of psychology in what we do. If I can go back to college and do more classes, I would, I was, I would definitely ramp up the psychology because I think it is absolutely fascinating. I studied accounting too. And I'm grateful for that accounting major. It's really been helpful, but I love people and I love real estate and I don't mind making money. And those things kind of are a real awesome combination 
for what we do. Every I, I tell people all the time that I'm very grateful that, you know, I stepped into a position as an intern at Rock Apartment Advisors and literally could not think of a better place to play out my my gifts. And I'm not strong in every in every area, but I do have strengths in people skills and hunting real estate, seeing things that other people don't see, whether it be that girl who walks in or that deal on the corner that's boarded up and but there's a brand new or a renovated property three doors down or you know, I've heard from a local city councilman that they're going to do a sidewalk beautification program and nobody really knows it yet. I mean, just things like that. Like you can see things that other people don't see and you realize the impact that might have on a particular deal. I'm rambling, but energy, positive energy. We would do a pot. We do a positive focus. We kick off a meeting every Monday. Like what's something positive that happened to you personally and professionally last week. And that just, it just really gets people grateful, start grateful. You know, it, it helps your day just to, just to verbalize and say something positive and then be available for people's needs. You know, what do you need help with this week? What can I help you with? That's been a big, you know, so culture wise here, it's not very um, structured. It's, it's more of uh, go with the flow and, you know, show up and work and we're all self-starters and everyone plug in in your place and, you know, pull your load. And, um, and if you're not pulling your load, then, you know, you're going to kind of hear about it. But fortunately with the right people, we, we don't have to have those conversations very often. That really sounds like you've kind of have an understanding and an awareness of the type of organization uh, and the type of person that would thrive in that environment and then structure it in a way for those people, again, to thrive. And uh, some of the ideas that came up there kind of really reminded me of the, the book Principles by Ray Dalio from Bridgewater and the way he describes his organization operating. He is hyper-focused on uh, kind of inbuilt personality types and matching people to their types of work based off of just repeatable patterns in human behavior based on whatever psychological test you uh, want to interpret. And then the other idea of the meritocracy, where it does not matter if it's the 22-year-old broker who, who just got out of college. If they have a good idea, they have a good idea. And they're more likely to feel empowered and excited to share that in that meritocratic environment and in the one where they travel with the principal of the fund to go out there and see the big deals and meet the big people and really feel like valued. And you can take whatever you want to make of this, you can, because that's kind of the environment you've set up there. But you'd also mentioned how you have this ability to see things other people don't see. And that's one thing Kyle and I were excited to chat with you about and a few episodes, especially some of the recent ones, we've experimented with the idea of an idea segment and where we kind of just go back and forth with our guests and kind of discuss in the, the hypothetical environment where they had much more time than they did because it's very frequently the type of people on the show who have so many ideas more than they could ever possibly execute on just because they're seeing patterns, they're seeing unmet needs, but they still have to fulfill their day-to-day obligations. Uh, so I wanted to start out by first asking you maybe to elaborate on the, the brokenness of the, the deal flow digital ecosystem, the first idea you'd shared, and then see if there are other areas of interest or other cool opportunities that you'd be interested in exploring if time was, was not a variable. But let's start with the, the deal flow ecosystem you think is broken that you have an idea for fixing. The flow of information is, you know, as you guys know, in the, in the greater world is, is more and exponential and technology is only getting faster. And, and, um, 
And the same is happening in the multifamily space and in, in this deal distribution. So, so how do you know, the human body can only take so much and you guys have probably read books on that. And, and where we are, we have so much information coming to us that we're, we're skimming and we're trying to skim and trying to get it in. And so my idea was how can we simplify the what's out, what's available for sale and the bid process. So there's a lot to keep up with. You know, if you're, if you're an acquisitions analyst for a firm, you're, you're doing what I said earlier, you're, you're signing up for the distribution emails, you're look, you're sifting through deals constantly. And there's, there's a, the conversation you have with brokers, there's a whisper price, but a lot of this stuff's unpriced. You have to underwrite the deal. Um, you have to know when the call for offer date is, you have to go tour the asset. That, there's a lot going on. And a, a way, you know, we used to mail things. Now our mail, we've just completely stopped mailing flyers and gone straight to email. But now the email has become overload. So my idea was, you know, I'm not saying that I'm a proponent or a high subscriber of the dating apps but I did download them when I was single in my mid thirties and people, it's fascinating to me how people make decisions about the girl who walks in with that picture, one picture. And if you're interested, you'd swipe to another picture. So my idea would be to create a tender for delivery of multifamily offerings. You like it? Nice guard style deal hits, hardy board, pitch roofs, you get the date on there, right? Whenever you see that picture of Joanne, you know, there's usually an age or where they're located. So we put the vintage of the deal, maybe where it's located, number of units. Cool, I'm interested, swipe right. Goes into my little bucket of I'm interested party. And when I swipe right, I'm automatically signing the confidentiality agreement. Mm -hmm. I'm automatically... Um, the recipient of that already has my information and now I have, and it automatically throws all the documents into my document vault and automatically adds the tour dates and the call for offer dates to my calendar of choice. Right. So all that is just right here on the phone, wherever I am. And, and then like Crexy, you could, you'll get a reminder offer to do today on Oakwood and Huntsville. So you go in and you put in your offer just on your phone and hit submit. And all of it is, should be managed right here instead of Dropbox and emails and, you know, trying to organize. So that, that's really the idea is, is more of a, from a broker standpoint, you know, as a broker, our job is to a number one, get the attention of the buyers period. It's a fight over attention. Can I get John to look at my deal and spend time with me versus him looking at three other deals in Atlanta, right? It's a fight over time because if you can get their time, they're vested. And if you get them vested, there has a higher probability of, a, of, a, of an offer. And the more offers you get, the higher velocity and probability of a sale will occur. So that was sort of an effort to, to ramp up and, and streamline and also save, save the acquisition guys time and headache. Ultimately, ultimately, it saves the acquisition company money as well. I mean, that massively reduces the friction 
of that passage of information. Cause like right now, if you know, you have to reach out on LoopNet or whatever to contact a broker and then they'll email you three days later. And then they send over the uh, DocuSign for a confidentiality agreement. And then it's just a long process. But if it was one swipe to go and to be able to do that, that would be incredible. I think that, I think that's an awesome idea. I wonder how you would, how you could pre-qualify buyers in order to set them in different price ranges. Cause like if you've got a big buyer looking for, you know, a hundred million dollar property showing them 50 garden style apartments would be, you know, a waste yeah. of time. Well, it goes back to the, in uh, Bumble and Tinder, you, you, you pick what you want to see, mm-hmm. you know, geographic area, race, gender. So you can pick, you can pick, you can pick what you want to receive. Right. And if the program and the algorithm works well, it's sending you stuff that you like first, right? Mm-hmm. It's hitting you with work with because they have to think Kyle's on a plane. He's got 30 minutes before he gets in his Uber. I'm going to hit him first with the higher probability deals. Right. Um, so I think all that would, all all that would work. And what would happen is if the market said, I got to use this, Netflix, Uber, Lyft. Will you like if you're not if you're if you're a broker and you're not using that program, then you're out. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're dead. So you want it to be so magnetic that everybody uses it, and it becomes the choice. Now, the real value to the company who builds it is not so much in the distribution and all that. It's more in the, in the data collection. Mm-hmm. Now you know who's, who's, who, who wants to buy what, and you also are getting financials loaded to the site, and those financials are extremely valuable because of, da- of just the data. I mean, expense numbers, revenue numbers, apartments.com would be your number one bidder to buy you apartments.com or co-star really ought to be they'd be biting they'd be trying to buy you from the moment you had any traction that was who i was gonna sell it to you know we and we had a team of engineers and 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 you know we put together a team and but they just wanted so much of my time to do it i just said i'm bouncing i'm sorry there you go now i'm freely sharing it with the world so someone should do that yeah, well, we were uh, supposed to have a podcast later on today uh, with a friend of ours who's starting Tinder for dog adoption. So, I mean, you, we could really reach out to him, borrow his tech stack, and just swap out the data inputs and market to a different user base. Be a big uh, pivot be, for be, him. And be halfway there. So it'd be it'd be it'd be, it'd be a very well liked app, and um, people would gravitate toward towards it very quickly. Yeah, I think you've proven yourself in your ability to see the future in the past. What do you think about um, the future of the actual physical real estate in the future? Like, you know, there's all these systems supporting the industry, but at the end of the day, what really matters is like the the wood and the physical walls and the way that the people uh, that live inside of that live. So like, what do you think... uh, are some innovations that are necessary for the future of uh, apartments and, and just generally living? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and, it, you know, affordability is a highly used word today. And, you know, 
with material costs going up and, you know, we have a, we have a major affordability problem in the country. And I do think that modular is something we've studied very closely for probably about six years now. I've, mm -hmm. I've visited many of the manufacturing sites. I've talked to many of the leaders in the industry, you know, Berkshire Hathaway bought into uh, the space uh, with Clayton. So I definitely think that systematic and, you know, it, but what's interesting is we're not there yet. I mean, we're, we're getting there and there's a company out in Phoenix. I'm trying to think of the name of them. I went and visited them where they're doing more robotics and SoftBank backed them and they're SoftBank put billions of dollars into the space where we're going to start. We will one day see homes being built in factories, much like we would, if you went into the Vance plant, you go into a manufactured facility now and you're seeing it's old school, you know, the, the, the most advanced technology is the nail gun and that's it stops mm -hmm. there but it's, it's going through very, it's still very much manual labor and disorganized. Like, I think the, the inefficiencies that exist with the contractor, general contract, subcontractor um, relationship, that if you could take all of that out in terms of like a, a Tesla style, fully integrated manufacturing from like, the like owning the entire production line would remove that entire inefficiency of the general contractor subcontractor that I think is what is causing a lot of this affordability problem because you know they are overshooting or undershooting based on their relationships with these people and it's just it's not it's not driven by like technology and science more than it is just like relationships and generally the fickleness of people. But if you could put all of that on a production line, like a Tesla, like a model three, but for an apartment, it'd be it dramatically reduce the cost. That's, that's where we're headed. And that's the only way to solve the problem. You know, what's the next sheetrock? Is it a liquid gel? Is it, a, is it clear? We've looked at some of that stuff, but will we have, we'll, we'll one day have, you know, I went to China 16, 17 and, uh, went with uh, Terry Horton, his brother, Don Horton has DR Horton. And we spent a couple of days there together and we, we looked at solar panels. Solar was in the windows. It was on the, on the walls of the exterior of the buildings. It was in the sidewalks and it was everywhere. So the materials being used will, will change. You know, just the 3d pouring is starting to come into more sight and it's becoming more visible so, man, I mean, the, the good news about this affordability crisis that we're in is making people think critically at an accelerated pace. And I do believe very heavily in modular. We're going to do, we're going to test the modular in my next development um, just north of Huntsville. So we're, we're going to, we've, we've, we've broken it down to size of the modular unit to the truck size and how we can get the, the cost down per mile and per load. So we've gone real deep in that with some wow. engineers and we're going to test it. But the nice thing about these is that you can stack them. I mean, we could do a, we could do a six story elevator product with the modular product. And we we think that we we're onto something where we can, basically build the do a hybrid where we do the mechanical systems hvacs plumbing electrical 
in a, in a certain span. And then we can do the stick built around it once it's on site. You know, the stick, the stick, the, the bedrooms, bedrooms and living spaces are the cheapest part of a home to build. Right. The kitchens and bathrooms and utility closets are the most expensive. So if you could just sort of bridge that and just do, do today what's the most inefficient and marry it with the field built most efficient, then you got a hybrid. And we're going to, we're going to test that in the next, we'll probably start break ground there uh, just North of Huntsville in a little town called Meridianville, probably, probably fourth quarter, 2021, maybe beginning of 2022. That's Extremely exciting. I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to stick build on slab, probably 220 units. And then we'll carve out, we got a little section carved wow. out. We're going to do modular. And then we're going to take people through it and say, what do you think you're standing in? Are we stick build? Or are we modular? And they're not going to be able to tell it. Well, if they listen to this podcast, they'll, they'll know. I'm really fascinated in all that. Um, what's, What's uh, the problem we have is that developers continue to build. It's just mm-hmm. so expensive that you have to depend on people with higher incomes to rent. And, 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 and there's a major bandaid on affordability. You know, there's high restrictions on doing trailer parks or modular. But what about like government incentives? Can't you, couldn't you build that in? I mean, the government wants to incentivize best practices because it's good for everybody in the long run. Like, you know, they gave huge tax rebates to Tesla's. Why would it not be a similar deal for modular housing? That's a good question. And, uh, and, and they are working heavily on that. Uh, and Carson um, pushed it, pushed a lot of things forward when he was there in office and with HUD. And it, there are a lot of good changes coming to the, modular side of things and it starts with you know just the banks mm-hmm. you know you call them chattel loans where these hard money lenders essentially would keep people in poverty in trailer parks where they just they were paying 10 to 15 percent to try to buy their home but that was really ignorance well, it was an attractive investment for the investor yeah but it wasn't thinking about the resident and trying to get mm-hmm. them lifted into being a, a real homeowner. It wasn't really fair. So now Fannie and Freddie have come up with pilot programs to offer, you know, much lower rates and they're, they're testing those, those financing options as we speak. And that is huge. That's very exciting for sure. I think that the hard part is aligning all of those incentives correctly from the very the the resident living there to the investor to the government and how to best do that you know and and how to paint the picture of those incentives for the long term but i think that we're going to transition now into what we like to call our bonus round which is just you know shorter like less thematically yeah. um relevant questions lewis i think is going to start us off what you got i was going to ask the first question here uh I'm sure there's a story behind it, and this is a detail. Kyle shared it in our kind of prep work and research for this conversation, is that you own a old limousine, uh, which is kind of a, a strange possession that I don't know too many people to own. Can you tell us a little bit about 
what that is, how you come to have an old limousine and maybe why you've held on to it? So I had a pool guy and he also set, sold big green eggs and all this. I had a saltwater pool. So I was going down on Saturday to pick up some salt for my pool and check out some new green egg features and, um, and maybe buy a couple of things for the green egg. And I saw this limo sitting out there and I was like, Steve, and I'd always see Steve out. He has a big going out guy, Highlands Bar and Grill and all the nice restaurants in town. I always see him. I'm like, what is the deal with the limousine? He's like, oh, you know, I had two daughters and, you know, I bought it and we just take them to their, their proms and their lead outs. And we get Alabama football games every now and then in it. He, he said, I, I might sell it to you. Um, so you can t- come test drive it. So I test drive it, drove like a dream. Still had Jefferson uh, Pilots cassette tape in there, had the little wine glasses, the Navy velour interior, Navy exterior. Drove like a dream, and I said, I, I want it. He goes, um, okay, it's $27.50. So I got my checkbook out and literally like we're at $27,500. And he was like, no, like $2,750. And I was like, scratched it out. Like, oh, my bad. I just made a rounding error. That's awesome. I think that's that's a funny story. And uh 2750 versus 27,000. Like I, like I lost out big in that moment, but um, over your right shoulder there, you do have a picture of you with the Oracle of Omaha. And uh, I want to ask you what surprised you about Warren Buffett during your dinner with him? Just how approachable. I mean, I really wasn't surprised, but he was very approachable. Um, just very, I mean, he told me a Paul Bear Bryant story the first time I met him and he laughed out loud. It was great. And one thing that he said that I'll never forget, he, he said, don't sleepwalk through life. And it was a bit ironic because the owner of the company was sending a direct message to me that it was time for me to be promoted and go to the next thing. He just didn't know he was telling me that. Right. But just a great guy and, you know, very personable drinks a diet, you know, drinks a Coca-Cola, you know, pretty regularly. I'd never read any of his books. Um, didn't really have a lot of background other than what I've just heard and read and seen, you know, seen him on TV and on different broadcasts, but just, I really enjoyed it. And I've written him, you know, and he writes right back and we exchange Christmas gifts and, and, you know, I was a little bit reluctant to do that, but, um, our CEO of our company is like, no, he's very approachable. Like you should, you should write him. Like he'll write you back. And, um, and he calls our, uh, he called our team here in Birmingham, the, the gang, which I thought was kind of an interesting term to use, but I think it's because we really are kind of rough around the edges, a little bit more, um, you know, aggressive in nature. And, and, you know, I think that, that he liked that. You know, that's a it's a dream to to meet that guy and to say you can just write him and he'll write you back is like unbelievable. So there's a lot of wisdom in that old man. But I've got one more question. I think Lewis probably have one more. But what mainstream advice in multifamily real estate do you disagree with? Buy just on cap rates. I was reading an article just yesterday. I think it was multifamily executive. A guy, a, a economic guy, a big analyst, he said, um, you know, we, we've been judging properties on cap rate for so long. And he said, I have a new model. And that is the amount of debt that's in the marketplace 
coupled with unemployment and how that correlates with GDP. And if all that lines up to where that gets ahead of GDP growth, then cap rates will compress. So it's, I was almost like predicting values beyond what we typically hear. So I, I would say that what I disagree with is when people say, oh, it's a X cap, can't buy it. And I see around all that because there's so many other influences that can bring the value of a property up. I disagree with the narrow-mindedness of of sort of the numbers don't work. I think that ability to challenge assumptions or just shed assumptions that everyone else in your field has is what's probably one of the few, if not only things that will enable you to see things that they're not seeing. Uh, Because again, like you've mentioned the word fire hydrant a couple of times in this interview, and it sounds like the industry that you're in day to day is truly a fire hydrant. And most people, the way that they've chosen to manage the fire hydrant is, okay, I'm just going to filter everything through cap rate. And what's, what do you have there? Is that fire. a fire hose? fire hose? Or is that a key? It's a big fire. It's the, <laughs> it's the tip of a fire hose. There you go. It's a very important symbol in, a, in multifamily, I guess, more so than I'd realized. But it sounds like everyone uses cap rate as a filtering mechanism to at least make that information overload more manageable. Uh, but if you remove that, then you're automatically looking at a different set of problems and a different set of opportunities from all of your competitors. And that's going to almost automatically set you apart as a broker. But I have one more question for you, kind of themed around a potential future direction for a podcast, but kind of our initial understanding anyway. One of the things Kyle and I hear very often is, you know, if I was your age and I was thinking about these things, I can't imagine where I'd be now. And our follow-up to that is, okay, so if you had all that time and you were 20 years old, what would be the high leverage decisions? What trees would you have planted 20 years ago that would be paying the dividends uh, today? 20 years later. So you obviously tell the story about how you got an extremely early start. So my question to you is what trees are you either glad that you planted so early on that are paying dividends now, or you would recommend planting around our age to pay dividends to later on in life? I had probably 10 jobs leading up to my internship at rock. So finding something that I liked, I worked for Senator Shelby on the Hill, thought politics. I worked at a bank, I worked for a law firm, I worked for Protective Life, insurance, I, I, I'm scratching all the itches and, and doing that as soon as you can to get to something you like. I mean, because putting on those boots that fit will take you much further if you can wear those boots that fit in your 20s and run in those boots as opposed to going, this just is not a good fit. Like this is my right foot hurts. Like th- I need to make a change. I think finding your passion early and plugging in, even if it means working for free or not making the money that you dream of making, getting in to those boots is really important. And I did that. And some of that was just by hustle and, and relationships and introductions and luck and all that. But, and then, and then secondly, I'm glad that I bought properties early. You know, when I worked at rock, my boss said, you got to stop buying properties. Like if everybody here in the firm starts buying properties, like we have a big conflict of interest and, you know, it's not going to be good. And I kept doing it. (laughs) And then um, (laughs) because, and I justified doing it because I was still producing as much as or more than most people there that who are producers. 
And I was still doing my side hustle, you know, in the evenings and the weekends buying, you know, and, and working on my projects. I mean, I'd leave work some nights and, and uh, go paint a, a vacant unit. So I think going all in and, try, and, and trying, to, trying to figure out how to own early is, is key because 10 years will fly by. And there were some years where my brokerage business was down. And if I hadn't had a deal that I owned with equity in it that I could sell or refinance, you know, I would have been struggling for oxygen, which is cash in my world. So I would just encourage anybody who, I mean, I had a guy come to me that heard the podcast uh, on Birmingham Real Investors or real estate. And he said, I just want to meet you. We had coffee. You know, it's kind of like, all right, let me try to be open minded. Like this is not just another, I want to, I want to suck everything out of your brain and pick your, I can't stand when people say pick your brain. It's just, I can't stand it. And he never said that, but he just, but one thing that he said, he said, I will come work for you for free. Like I will, I want to work. I like that. If, if that hunger is what will, will get you where you want to go. So I don't care. You know, I would, if, if you have the opportunity to get in with someone to learn, that's, that is paramount. Even if it means you live in your car and you eat PB and J and Raymond noodles, that that's what I would recommend. So many people, you know, are guided by what their parents say. You need to get that. You need to go do this. Let me, let me just say, it's okay to know something that your parents don't know. And, and if you think, you know, something your parents don't know, then lean into your intuition and that you're probably right because the world is changing really fast. And it's hard for our parents to even know what's happening and on some levels. That doesn't mean to disrespect your parents. It just means that go with your gut. And, you know, I never thought that I would make as much as my parents made over the life of their careers in a very short period of time. I took my dad a long time to even figure out what I was doing. Like, how are you doing all this? Dad was an electrician, clocked in the factory and clocked out. He didn't understand um, real estate until he started, he bought his first deal and now he's in his fourth deal which is very rewarding to watch, watch that happen. But yeah, I mean, lean in, get started, tell yourself you can learn, learn and understand what a deal is, get in your damn car, drive around, get, be nosy, be confident, strike up conversations, but you got to love real estate. If you don't, I mean, that's our first criteria. Like I can sit down with somebody in two minutes, determine whether or not they're going to be successful in real estate or not, because I can, I can see whether or not they love it or not, or not. And one way you can determine whether or not you love it is if you're in the car, you're going to see some of your buddies in Nashville or Atlanta or whatever, you're traveling or on a road trip. If you find yourself doing this and doing that and looking at rooftops and stopping and turning around or you see a sign for sale and you're stopping or you have the urge to stop, you're on to something. Yeah, it, it's a big like world view shift when you start to look at the world in terms of the businesses that real estate is and how they surround you. And, and like one really like big change for me was just realizing that everywhere I'd ever been my whole life, no matter what, was a piece of real estate that somebody had either made money from or was going to make money from in the future. And it's like, 
wow, that's <laughs> everywhere you've ever been ever and will continue to be forever. So I really like that. But one last question for you, David, you're only 39 years old. Uh, you've had an incredibly successful career so far. What do you hope, what's left on the table? What have you not done that you want to accomplish in the next 10 years? I want to buy and syndicate and own 20,000 units. And I would like to build an additional 5,000 units in the next 10 years. So that would put me at 25,000 units in 10 years. And, and I don't want to do that just to say I did that. I just want to accomplish that size portfolio because that's the sort of impact that I want to have and the platform that I want to have um, and the reach that I want to have into the hearts, minds, and lives of residents, employees, uh, teammates, camaraderie, you know, touchdowns, high fives. So I think that gets me there. Um, and just really excited about the journey and the people you go on the journey with. That's really what it's all about. That's an amazing answer. Well, we're grateful to you for coming on our podcast and, and sharing your wisdom with us. And we'll be watching closely as you uh, reach that number of 25,000, which I'm sure you'll do. Thank you guys. I think you guys are doing something special. Thanks for sharing uh, my story with uh, your listeners. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Take care. And that wraps up our conversation with David Oakley. It was a really, really cool uh, chance for me to get to interview him as he's somebody who I really want to emulate in the future in terms of my career path. Um, but a few of my key takeaways from that conversation are number one, how Birmingham is a real estate melting pot. I thought that was a really interesting um, observation from him. You know, I've lived here my whole life and I've never heard that sort of illustration of the city like that, especially in terms of real estate, like how, you know, there's a bunch of institutional money from New York and billions of dollars from there, but there's also a lot of mom and pop investors and how that makes this city a really interesting place to invest in real estate. The second thing is how we should consider other metrics besides the cap rate in valuing real estate and how some people can get so caught up on the cap rates and, and the, the normal KPIs that it doesn't allow them to be creative and see sort of a back way into a really, really good deal. And then the third and final, and this was a really, really cool piece of advice. It's like, you know, we asked him what he wished he had done or what advice he gives to young people. And what he said is, you know, he worked at insurance companies, he mopped floors, he did all these different jobs. And because he tried so many things that he, he knew when he found multifamily, that it was the place for him. And he said that, you know, once you find boots that fit, it's a lot easier to run a long way. And I thought that was a really, really cool piece of advice that everybody should follow. Yeah, I think those are really valuable takeaways. And I uh, especially like the one about not looking at cap rates exclusively when evaluating deals. I think uh, we talked a lot about, you know, discerning information and finding information that's actionable and or interesting from just a massive volume of information. And one way to quote unquote, you know, see what others don't see is by choosing to ignore what everyone else is focusing on or choosing to focus on what everyone else is ignoring. And he gave some really interesting examples there, but I just have three shorter takeaways than usual since I've uh, rambled pretty good in the last couple episodes. But 
Number one, I had asked about kind of market timing and his answer was really just, he is never regretted early ownership. He has been happy that he entered when he entered and you know, time is a huge piece of the equation in real estate. So I thought that was interesting. You know, didn't have any magic answer for timing. He just kind of emphasized early ownership. Second thing, uh, the importance of being willing to work for free. If there's someone who is the best in the world at what it is you want to do, it might be worth optimizing to work for them for free to, you know, use learning and education as the currency of how you're determining the value of what you're doing and how much you're quote unquote getting paid rather than the salary uh, and how if you remove that burden, you can expose yourself to opportunities that have bigger long-term potential. And the third, I just wanna repeat what you shared about the boots. I thought that was definitely the most powerful and memorable uh, idea from the episode. Not that the rest wasn't awesome as well, just that specifically really stuck out to me as well. It's kind of what we do with this podcast in a way, but not fully. You know, We use this as a way to interview different people and kind of taste a little bit about that line of work and that domain of knowledge and the things involved in doing the job that they do. And it kind of has made me call into question, you know, am the boots I'm currently wearing, do they fit? What do, do I want to run in these boots forever? Or should I try in a couple other pairs? And I think that's a really beneficial way. Again, if you think about the long term, if you think about 20 years and you have to wear the same pair of shoes for 20 years versus spending two years, you know, spent trying on a bunch of different boots, it might be worth it considering how long you're going to wear that same pair of boots. So I really liked all he had to say, but especially like that metaphor. I really hope that you all enjoyed this episode. If you did, we have about 48 more similar to it in terms of the types of people we bring on and the questions that we ask them. We have really great recent episodes with Dee Murthy from Young and Reckless, Guy Swan, who talks about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, and Taylor Pearson, who discusses the effects he's observed from being a popular blogger for almost a decade now. I would highly recommend checking out those episodes and learning from their wisdom as well. But if you want to show your thanks in this episode, the best thing for you to do is leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes to help grow our show in the rankings. That is all for this week, and we'll see you in another week with the next episode. See ya.